Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the View Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. That's funny. No, he's talking like that because uh, I was testing some new headphones out for recording before we started and uh, for some reason it skewed the audio on my computer and everything sounded like, I called him Helium Jim. And uh, it's really weird to hear someone with as, as a bassy a voice as Jim speaking like three octaves too high. It was fantastic. I gotta reboot my shit, Chipmunk Boy. Hold on a second. You gotta start over now. No, I was saying you. Uh, I gotta reboot my shit, Chipmunk Boy. <laughs> yeah, and and that's all it took was I rebooted everything and it works just fine now. But it was really really strange. So, eh, whatever. Technological glitches aside, we're happy to be back in your ear holes, Jim. How you doing today, buddy? Pretty good. Uh, working on not a ton of sleep because uh, my lady and I went down to hang out with some friends in Chicago last night and we didn't get back until the wee hours of the morning. Uh... And then uh, had to wind down and sleep. But, you know, that's really what weekends are for. So, in the grand scheme of things, not a big deal. Although it does warrant a mention that because um, our ride back from Chicago was almost exactly as long as one of our average conversations, I did plug in and listen to the... Uh, the episode we just did with our good friend Kermit Apio from last week. That was a fun episode. And, you know, it is a fun episode, but I, I listen back to the podcast a lot. And I always, I should do it more often than I do. Like, I, I, I always tell, well, I was there for it, so I don't really. But, first of all, I appreciate the editing job that you do with making sure that I don't sound like an idiot. And sprinkling in all kinds of fun textural things, like the sound effect you'll put in right here, which will be dealer's choice. You love me. You really love me. Boing. But also because I need to uh, remember that I'm not just talking to my buddy. I'm actually talking to people who might be listening to us. So I need to do things like not tear ragged breaths in between like spitting million mile an hour crap out of my mouth. So I'm really going to try, especially in this episode, but going forward to speak in a much more measured rate of speech and not tear ragged breaths as often as I do. Because... If I'm pissing myself off listening to me, I can only imagine how hard it is for anybody who's not me who has to listen to me. So I'm going to try and be better and develop some 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 improved mic techniques. Testes, testes, one, two, three. Better enunciation, a more measured rate of speech, and maybe not gasping asthmatic breaths as often as I have been in the past. So um, if if I can keep that at the forefront of my head, hopefully. Uh, anybody listening will enjoy at least a somewhat better audio quality from yours truly moving forward. Well, the only thing that I have to say about that is, I, I mean, I'm accustomed to the way you speak. I'm accustomed to the speed at which you speak. Well, when I was 12 years old growing up on Long Island, there was a cerebral palsy for a few blocks away from my house, and they announced that they would donate $2,000 to cerebral palsy for anyone that broke a Guinness record. So at first I wanted to ride the roller coaster at Coney Island, so I called Coney Island, and they said, hey, kid, take a hike at 12 years old. We're not going to let you strap yourself into the cyclone for two weeks straight. So I went home, and I started flipping through the book and decided I was going to eat a car, swallow lead pipes, so the next best thing was to lock myself in a room and teach myself how to do the fast talking. The only thing that I would have to mention is that it makes it really hard if I want to cut in a joke. You know what I mean? Because it's yeah. like finding the the room in that wiggly line that I have to cut in between uh, phrases is a bit more difficult when it's mock speed speaking. So, Well, I really think it all boils down to that sort of classic, um, 
when we're talking about something about which we are excited, which is most of the stuff we talk about. If we didn't want to talk about things that, that kind of lit us up as, as people with fandoms, then A, we wouldn't have a podcast. And even if we did have the podcast, we wouldn't talk about those things. So at the very least, it comes from a place of, uh, I, I come by it honestly, it comes from a place of excitement. It's it passion. comes from a place of, uh, yeah, it, it really, and that's, that's what we fucking do. It's what we do. We're passionate about our fandoms, and if I'm rattling off crap at a million miles an hour, it's only because I'm super excited about what I'm talking about, or like in the case of to us talking to Kermit last week, um, I'm just super excited to have a guest that, uh, that I really enjoy as a person and as an artist, and I'm just kind of like, blah, 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 like Les Claypool plays bass. I'm out there just, you know, <laughs> yakking up a storm. So I'm, I'm, I'm really going to try to be a lot more cognizant of that. I mean, I've actually said that before, and then I just forget. So I have to kind of hold that in the forefront of my head and just be kinder to our listeners uh, going forward. Well, so that's, right, that's, that's my that's my. Don't plan. beat yourself up about it, though. I mean, it's, it's like, again, as you said, it's not only is it the way you speak, but it's the way you speak when you're passionate about something. And I think most people would understand that. Well, I suppose. I just, if we're going to be doing a podcast, which it appears we are, you know, a couple of years later, um, <laughs> then it's, it's one of, we, we, we constantly are, are kind of saying, this is an audio-only medium, and I'm holding something up to the camera that my, my co-host can see, but we're, you're just going to have to envision it, and I'll describe it to you. So because it is an audio medium, I just have to be a little more cognizant of the sound I'm putting out. Yeah, so uh, going forward, I will be a little bit more courteous to our listeners, and I, I, I'm going to make sure that um, I'm putting out a better quality of product, not just to make life easier on you as an editor, because you do, as I've said repeatedly, do the heavy lifting on the tech end for this podcast, but also just the folks that are goodly enough to listen to us, I want to take it easier on their ear holes. I'm going to slide much more gently into your holes going forward, everyone, so just, you know, that's my promise to you. Prepare for that. Be prepared. Yeah, get ready. Just lie so back we... and think of England, I guess. <laughs> Don't... <laughs> Jesus Christ. So we were talking uh, before we started uh, uh, shooting today, and uh, we were talking about uh, you know the things that we're passionate about and how much money they cost yep. us. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, uh, you just caught uh, a new uh, a speaker for your... Uh, or uh, not a speaker, it's a head unit for your... Uh, guitar playing yeah yeah um I, the band that i'm in i'm i'm mostly singing but because there are a couple songs where russ it's bucket kind of a good idea. For oh yeah russ bucket okay yeah facebook.com slash russ bucket the band is is uh is my boys and me so um i i had been at, at some of our gigs and actually our rehearsals but all the gigs also um playing some kind of backup guitar we have two incredibly competent and uh, actually incredibly talented guitar players who kind of trade leads, and whoever's not playing lead, uh, you know, does like backups and rhythms and that kind of thing, and they swap that off. Um, but there are a couple of songs, at least, where it just behooves us and thickens up the sound to have me play some backup guitar. And I'm not a guitarist. I do. I have a competent uh, rhythm technique. Um, I'm, I, as I've said before, I'm primarily a drummer. In every band that I've been in previous to this one, I have been the drummer and sung some backups. Um, but in this one, I'm playing a little bit more guitar. Um, and my technique is based on, like, 
it's not based on anything except, hey, I was always the drummer, and my friends would come over to jam, and they would leave their guitars lying around the rehearsal space, and I picked them up and started messing around with them. And because my snare drum hand is also my strum hand, because I'm a lefty, um, but I play guitar really messed up. I gotta, I play guitar left-handed, meaning that the neck is pointing over my right shoulder, but I play with a right-handed string arrangement because all my friends were right-handed, so and they left the guitars down. over. It's upside down, but so are the strings. I don't have the guitar strung left. I play it in a left-handed position, but the, the strings are a right-handed string arrangement, so it's kind of messed up. But I play drums right-handed because I had already played drums for about five or six years as a kid before I knew there was a left-handed way to set them up, but because my teacher was right-handed, it just never occurred to either one of us that maybe I should throw my hi-hat over on the right-hand side and have everything kind of mirrored from what people are used to seeing. So I don't play a single instrument the way that I should based on being a lefty. But um, I do play some backup guitar, but I had been playing my guitar through an effects pedal, and the effects pedal was plugged into a V-drums amp, the, the, the Roland V-drums, the electronic drums monitor, like a floor wedge monitor, um, for if you're playing electronic drums in a live setting, so you can, you can hear yourself, and then the other channel goes through the house so that the folks in the audience can hear you. So I had been playing guitar through... Not a guitar amp at all. It was it was a, an electronic drums monitor. And it was a, an electric box with a speaker in it and an input. So it made sound when I plugged the guitar into it, but it wasn't specifically speaking a guitar amp. Right. So I thought to myself, in order to do a better service to the guys in the band and also the audiences, because we're picking up steam and booking more gigs now, I should get myself a proper guitar amp. So I looked around. I did some research, I solicited some recommendations and opinions from the other guys in the band and other guitar players that I know, and I wound up getting uh, the Boss Katana 100 Mark II amp, um, which is a really good m modeling amp. It's a combo amp, but what makes me really happy about it is because I play acoustic guitar on some songs and electric on others, um, this is an amp that can actually, you can play acoustic or electric through it, and it sounds great either way. Most amps are either one or the other, so that right. was the first thing. And the other thing is that this amp has the ability to uh, store presets um, because it is a digital modeling amp, so it emulates sounds of old solid-state or tube amps uh, that kind of came before it uh, in a pretty um, good way. So I, I'm able to sort of dial in some presets and then hold in a button, and I have eight preset slots where I can sort of dial in a sound and then hold in the button so I don't have to dick around with knobs when I'm changing guitars. I can just turn around, pick up the other guitar, hit the preset knob, or the button, the preset button, and the sound I have dialed in will automatically be there. So it's just a really good amp, but it was not inexpensive. Um, <laughs> and I actually spent more on the amp than I have made playing gigs with this band in the last couple of months. So, like, you know this, and anybody else who's in a band that's not the Foo Fighters or, you know, Blink-182 <laughs> or whoever's out there touring knows this. If you're in a local band, it's not a money-making proposition. You do Absolutely it because you're not. You're out there playing in front of people. You're, you know, you have an original band, I do covers, um, and we're out there because we love what we do. But, you know, it's an expensive hobby. Uh, you're not going to be... Sure, you're going to take a couple bucks out of a gig, but it's not going to cover what you spent to get there. I remember seeing this old meme. That was uh, a musician is a person that loads $5,000 worth of gear into a $2,000 car and spends uh, 100 bucks on gas to get to a gig that pays him $50. And that's just kind of the way it goes. Um, but still, it's, it's going to improve our sound quite a bit. It was, uh, I think, an investment. 
Um, we have a couple of gigs coming up that will more or less cover the cost of the amp, but like I said, I mean, you know, anybody who's in a local band, we don't do it for the Benjamins. We do it because we love it, and and that's why we do it. But yeah, so the amp is a lot of fun. It's going to make our sound better. Um, but because it is an amp that actually has some presence to it, and it's a loud enough amp that I can put it on stage and turn it up about a fifth of, of the, the volume knob, uh, it's got a lot of power to it. I'm not going to need to turn up very loud to be heard, but if I do turn up loud enough to be heard, that puts some pressure on me as a guitarist to just improve. I gotta get, I, I gotta learn how to play guitar better now because people are gonna be able to fucking hear me. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. But yeah, no. so expensive hobbies. Yeah, well, I mean, mine's not any less expensive now. I, I ended up, uh, I've been trying to build my credit up by using credit cards and paying them off, and using yeah. credit cards and paying them Same. off. And so I've got, I've accumulated a couple of credit cards, but I've been what I've been using them on. What I should be using them on is to buy gas, or my my tri- trips to restaurants when I'm out on the road sure. doing my work, responsible shit like that. But that's not what I'm doing. I've uh, mm-hmm. I've been trying to flesh out the collection of just a bit more with harder to find units, uh, uh, game console units, and so uh, I ended up uh, I, I've I've gotten. A couple off of eBay that I've paid off and gotten a couple on eBay and paid them off. And so it's been kind of doing that. But this last week ended up being stupid expensive for me because, first off, I ended up picking up... Uh, I did some trading with my buddy Ryan who owns a toy box. And I ended up picking up this really nice uh, Fuchsia Game Boy Advance SP that's in really, really just screaming good condition. Which is going to change in about a week when I get it in the mail because... I ordered the IPS screen replacement for it and everything, so it's going to get the whole, the bright, shiny, new screen like it deserves because it's a beautiful You're going to get the old Sync TLC when you tear something down and make it better. Hopefully. And then I ended up picking up uh, one of my go-to, the finds that I've been looking for is is the Nintendo 3DS. When they came out with the new 3DS, uh, they mostly focused on the new 3DS XLs. Which are great. That's one of the ones. That's my daily carry one is a 3DS XL uh, that I carry around. And uh, I've hacked it and put all the games on it and spent a lot of time with it. But uh, they released also the 3D, the new 3DS regular. Which is just a smaller form factor. Easier to pocket. Easier to carry. And I ended up picking one of those before the market exploded on them. I ended up picking the black one up uh, for, I think it was like 75 bucks. It was a song. And nice. uh, so I've been hunting down the white one so I can have a match set of black and a white. And uh, it's just been impossible to source that white one or locally or on eBay for under like 250, three bills. Oof. And so what I did, finally I sourced one from Japan that is, it's just the plain white, but I ended up picking up uh, a skin for it off of uh, Etsy and uh, the skin is going to go over the top and the bottom and the inside and make it styled like the old uh, Japanese Famicom which I thought would be fun because it is a Japanese unit it comes all in Japanese you can only play Japanese region games on it unless you do what I did to it which is beat it into submission hack it three ways to Sunday and now it does whatever the fuck I want it to Mm -hmm. so that being said, so I got that. I ended up getting, uh, what was the other thing I got? Oh, uh, I collect pretty specifically 
if we're going to talk about my holy grail must-have collection, I collect um, Game Boy Micro. Uh, and Game Boy Micro was a step right after the Advance SP and going into the DS. And it's just this super small handheld that fits right and snugly in your pocket. And it's just, it's wonderful. It's one of my absolute favorites. They're ridiculously expensive right now. But, uh, so the Game Boy Micro is one of my absolute favorites. I have uh, the Famicom edition, which is the maroon with the gold tone and all that, which is really cool. And then I have the uh, original one that I bought, which is black. And then I have the, uh, the purple one that I bought. That's an uh, overseas one. I think it was Japan. Uh, it's purple. It's like this lavender purple. It's a lot cooler than I thought it would be when I bought it. But, uh, so there's a couple of color variants that I've been on the hunt for. One of which is uh, the green one, which we've talked about being uh, about seven or $800 to find and capture right now. Which sucks because it's price. steep. It's steep. That's the price. And of not collecting. that the Game Boy Micros aren't cool. They're very cool. But we're, this is like a tiny unit. This is like maybe uh, the width of a deck of cards is slightly longer. These are very, very small yeah. Uh, units that's to, especially i mean they're they're very cool and but you know you, you definitely pick yourself a uh a pretty expensive variant of the old handheld console to be uh to be yeah. your, your grail those things are tiny yeah they're smaller it's like than... two packs of gum sitting next to each other it's, that's dinky <laughs> but uh so the green one i've been looking for but it, you can't find it cheap uh, i yeah. i found one on ebay this morning actually while i was out smoking and uh, uh i told my wife i said this is dangerous because this is a grail item it's smoking, in rough... Yeah, the smoking's definitely dangerous. No, not that. The uh, <laughs> the handheld's in kind of rough shape, but it's the green yeah. one. And if I can get it and kind of give it some loving, I might be able to cross that off my bucket list really cheap. But the nice. other one I ended up picking up off the credit card. I bid sniped someone at the last minute on eBay. Sorry, whoever you are, but not sorry. I ended up scoring the... Uh, it's a European Union exclusive again. Uh, it's the hot pink one. And so it's it's this beautiful hot pink. It looks like it's in great shape, and I uh, picked it up for about eighty bucks less than what its current market value is. So that's good. So it's it's expensive. This hobby is quite expensive, but I mean I do enjoy it. Like I said, I hacked uh, this Japanese white uh, P or 3DS, the new 3DS, and installed about a hundred and forty-five games on it. And later today, it's going to get the NES 3DS, or the NES, SNES, you know, GBA, Game Boy, Game Boy Color. It's going to get all those. Just well the whole boat. It's going to be a very, uh, a tight little unit. And, and the thing is, is uh, it took, just to install the 3DS games on it, mm-hmm. I started it around noon yesterday. And as of recording, it's about uh, 12.45 right now. It only just got done right before we started recording. It took a full 24 hours to install everything. 24 hours later. It's a lengthy process. Well, thankfully, it's also a passive process. You don't have to sit there and babysit it. You can just get it going and then walk away. You set it and forget it, and you come back and you got games. Exactly. Well, I mean, I kind of keep it with me because there's a couple of error messages that can pop up and, and, and just spoil the progress on it. But, I mean, I got it set up and... I'm learning how to do more repair work and stuff like that. My my uh, drummer, Jeremy, shout out Jer Bear. I don't know if you listen or not, but uh, uh, he is a gamer. He loves to play competitively. 
He is, uh, as you would want most of your drummers to have, he has got a very aggressive uh, kind of sense. And he, he hit me up. He knows I like to try and repair things. And he said, hey, remind me, I've got some controllers you could take a look at that uh, have met various fates at my hands. <laughs> and, I, and so last practice, I sat there and I'm like, hey, you had some controllers? And I was just like, he's going to bring me out like two, three busted Xbox controllers and call it good, right? He brought out six Xbox Series Elites. Uh, three Series wow. 1 Elites, three Series 2 Elites. All smashed a $50 a f- controller, isn't it? About 180 retail. Jeez. Okay. But uh, smashed to bejesus, all six of them. Ugh. And so uh, I, first of all, I was sticker shocked and flabbergasted for him. But he's got he yeah, he lives real. re- relatively meagerly, so he's got the he makes mechanic money. So I mean he does all right. But uh, I ended up out of the three series twos, I was able to patch one together. That's almost it's about ninety percent now. The only thing is the left thumbstick doesn't click. You know how when you uh, push when you're playing games and you can click it and it has a separate action. And you kind of need that. Most yeah. games actually, yeah, it's, which is really funny when you think about it, because, I mean, not that I want to date myself, although somebody has to, rimshot. Um, but I remember being a kid, and I'm old enough that, like, I, I keep on seeing these memes on Facebook, I'm this old, and people put up, like, an NES, and I'm like, first of all, fuck you. Second, <laughs> my first console wasn't even an Atari 2600. My first console was the... Like Pong Deck, they had to sit crisscross applesauce on the floor the because Magnavox. the Fender style controllers were actually built right into yeah a Magnav- it was even before the Magnavox Odyssey. This was like the first Magnavox, like the first before it had like a, a fancy, fun brand name and played multiple games. I think uh, this, Ryan has uh, that, one of those right now. This did play multiple games, but it played soccer, Pong, uh, basketball, anything that you could you know. Uh, control with a couple of paddle style controllers and it was in black and white and we played it on a 13 inch black and white tv that's how old my ass is but i remember the first like really decent video game console that everybody had was the atari 2600 and that was like 77 i think um but we got so much mileage out of one button we had a stick oh yeah a button a four-way, and if you were lucky, eight-way stick and one button. The fire button, usually, because you were playing something like Space Invaders or Yars Revenge, and that's what it did. It fired a projectile. And now we have these controllers that have 17 buttons. You know, a trigger button on each side, a shoulder button on each side, two thumbsticks that click, four regular buttons, uh, a bunch of buttons that do, like, menu-style things, plus a D-pad, you know... It's the crazy. games are so sophisticated. I, I I have made the point many, many times that I'm kind of lucky that I chose a hobby that has matured along with me. Because as a kid, I was absolutely thrilled with like Atari 2600 Combat, which now looks as rudimentary as hell. Uh, just, you know, pixels the size of canned ham is swimming around your television set. But as a kid, with no basis of reference for anything like, hey, you know, I can yell at Barney Miller all I want, and he's still going to be, you know, doing whatever he wants to do. But if I plug this box into my TV, I can actually make things on the TV move. I can have influence over what happens on my TV, and that's cool as fuck. And now, I'm like, ah, that sandbox is only 200 hours long? Fuck it, I'll wait for the next one. (laughs) So, to a certain extent, I'm spoiled, and I know that. But I also am lucky. 
I'm lucky because this hobby has matured along with me. And whereas I used to be absolutely just beside myself with joy that I could move my little spaceship back and forth and blast, you know, uh, space invaders out of the air. Now, I need all fucking 17 of those buttons on that controller or else I'm not getting the full experience. So, uh, bravo to Jeremy for, uh, for getting his controllers uh, to where they needed to be to get patched up to be able to have the full gaming experience that we maybe, all love. And, maybe. and bravo to you for, for helping him out with uh, getting those things put back together again. Now, like I said, it's I've got one out of the three. The other two are just hopeless, hopeless lost causes. I've got this one, like I said, back to mostly about 90%. And I ordered a replacement thumbstick on eBay. The only thing that really has any kind of hesitation with me is it's going to require soldering. And I'm still very rudimentary with soldering. I mean, I've done a couple of successful tests and I've, I've uh, done a couple of successful solders. But uh, I don't want to let that go to my head because once you get inside uh, big console things, there's far more moving parts and... And tiny ribbon cables and things you can just snap with a look. So, well, anybody that's um, used a modern game controller, no matter what your your particular flavor of console is, uh, those controllers they're they're built to be durable. Uh, because I think the people that make the hardware understand that people are going to be wrenching those things around. They're going to be death gripping them because the games are very compelling and sometimes get kind of tense. Or in Jeremy's case, hucking them at a wall. Yeah, and I think the people that the people that made the controllers, they make them to a certain standard of durability, but they're not thinking about the fact that, hey, this is a person who's both a drummer and a mechanic, so they're <laughs> going to have hand strength that's off the charts, and they might occasionally just go ahead and chuck these things in the drywall. So we got to be a little bit more on top of making sure these things are built to a durability standard that exceeds uh, all reason. But... Um, yeah, well, Speak, you know, good luck speaking with that. of speaking of durability, I did end up picking. Well, there was one other thing I picked up, which was uh, off of a, a, a market, not marketplace. It was through a group that I'm in with on Facebook, that is a, a gaming collecting group, and this guy popped up a, a refurbished OLED, or it said it was a refurbished OLED Nintendo Switch, mm-hmm. and uh, for like two fifty, and so I snapped that. How that refurbished already? Those damn things are brand new. Well, here's the thing. I think the box was damaged when it was okay. delivered uh, from Amazon, and so the guy returned it because he didn't want to take a chance uh-huh. on it. Because when okay. I picked it up, the unit worked fine, perfectly fine to test it out while I was because I'm not falling for that again. Uh, tested right. it out, and uh, everything worked fine. Got it home, opened up the box. The dock had never even been unwrapped. The Joy-Con slides that you put on the Joy-Con to turn them into independent controllers. Had yeah. never even been unwrapped. The cabling had never even been unwrapped. I mean, the only thing that had been unwrapped was the main unit and the Joy-Cons. And they looked like they were in pristine shape. The thing plays amazingly. So, uh, well, shout out. Know. I know. I love it. And I transferred my... Uh, everyone in my house has a Switch of their own now. So, anytime they get bored, if I'm at work or whatever, they can always just come out to the living room, slot theirs in, and start playing on the big TV, which is nice. Uh, I ended up uh, giving my wife... Uh, who's been a real holdout to playing video games. Uh, she just doesn't feel like she has the time or the wherewithal to do it. But I ended up giving her my Switch. And she went right out and bought her own first video game for it. And she's been ab- addicted to it. She's been absorbed right into it. Which is... What did she get? She got Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. Because she likes the Mario games and she likes the puzzle yeah. stuff, so 
good choice. It's perfect for her, and and she's been loving it. And so it's really cool that we've all got our our, our own uh, unique uh, switches that we can just uh, dock wherever we need to dock them and play them whenever we need to play them. And you know, I told them it's like it doesn't matter how many games you've got or you've got or my wife's got the one game now. I said I got like fifty. So you can yeah. rotate through my Switch games if you want to, and there's plenty of choice. So, well, get rocking, get docking, and uh, get out there playing. Well, uh, according to the, uh, the the timestamp on my recording software, uh, we're about <laughs> half hour in. So I want to thank you for listening to another, another episode of the uh, Fuel Your Tangents podcast. But we're actually going to probably <laughs> at some point, uh, and I'm, I'm not right. dinging either one of us for this one because <laughs> I, I I did the same thing with the so, but. We do actually have something that we want to talk about today, right. and in a um, in a rare instance of me actually trying to pull my weight with this podcast, we we, we do and we love, and we hope you enjoy it too. Because as I've said before, my boy, my boy on the screen does most of the heavy lifting. Um, I actually put on my thinking cap and came up with a topic today, which is kind of like unusual for me because usually what? I don't have good ideas, and you do. But we were trying to come up with a, something we wanted to talk about today, and. It seems like a, a, a timely thing uh, to talk about now, uh, and we've been saying we're going to do this for a while, but uh, right. a while just became now, uh, because <laughs> season three of the Orville just debuted on Hulu. New um, Horizons. And the first, yeah, Orville New Horizons, season three. And so we are uh, one episode in to the third season, but... In preparation for episode uh, one of the third season, and because uh, the Orville was one of those shows that my girlfriend had hoped to watch at some point but never really got around to, uh, yeah. in the last week and a half or so, we've rewatched the first two seasons of the Orville in Such preparation a good show. for Such a good show. the new episode dropping to uh, just this week. And we want to talk about the Orville for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, because it is a very fandom worthy show. Uh, but also it's because born it just, out of fandom. Yeah, the it entire is. It, concept it is a, for that show was yes. born out of Seth MacFarlane's fandom for uh, original Star Trek, and it's it is, by fandom for fandom. Absolutely, I probably had so to mention we, that. So yeah, we love yeah. Absolutely, that's that's it is it is germane to the uh, to the topic at hand, and it is also just baked into the DNA of this show. That that show is basically fan fiction, but produced by somebody who actually has the clout and the resources to, to bring it to life. Yeah. Um, and I fucking love the Orville, which is weird, because as we've said on the podcast, as I've made the point many, many times, I kind of feel like um, Trek passed me by a little bit. I appreciate Trek, I respect Trek, but because I didn't... By the time that I was able to really spend any time... Uh, investing in Trek, there were already three or four series that were out. I think I, I sort of like started to think to myself, I should get into Trek somewhere around Deep Space Nine. But then I looked at, oh, shit, I would have to watch the uh, the original series, all of that. I would have to go back and watch, what, seven or eight seasons of Next Generation. Seven. I'd have to get caught up. Yeah, I'd have to get caught up. It just, it's the same thing with Doctor Who. It's not it's that daunting. I don't love it. It's it is. It's just a lot to catch up on. If you're coming to it as a new fan, after they've already had five or six, or in my case, at least three or four, a uh, whole ass series that are either out or in progress, I just kind of went, you know what, I might just have to let this one go. Um, so, I love Trek. 
what I've seen of it, I love. I respect Trek, but I am very markedly not somebody who feels like I can claim a Trek fandom just because I'm not steeped in it, because there's just so much. By the time I, I, I really thought I should get into it, there was just too much to catch up on. But the Orville... Uh, is is only just beginning the third season. And that's a story in and of itself why it's just beginning the third season, but nonetheless. Right. Um, I wanted to watch The Orville because I always kind of felt guilty for what I feel missing the boat on Trek. All, any, any and all things Trek. But also because I think a lot of people, when they heard, hey, there's a Star Trek-inspired series that's like going to be set on a star cruiser and it's going to like involve a lot of the same tropes a lot of a lot of very trek like elements but it's going to be produced by Seth MacFarlane. I think a lot of us thought, "Yeah, that's cool. That's going to be trek with dick jokes." But it's not. I mean, there are dick jokes. I mean, Don't it is. You're wrong. Yeah. It is, but I think it a lot of people expected just a, like a, an affectionate parody like Galaxy Quest or like a spoof or Something that was kind of like Trek-like, but lighter and maybe not as serious. And while there are elements of humor, and I've read quite a bit about this new season in the last couple of weeks in anticipation of it, and Seth MacFarlane refers to that as comedy frosting, um, <laughs> this is a really, really good series and an incredibly worthy yeah. uh, piece of, 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 uh, of, of entertainment that I feel can stand shoulder to shoulder with anything Trek has done. I have referred to the Orville several times in several contexts as um, the best non-Trek Trek. See, and that that comes from a long line of uh, homage and spoof and, and comedy yeah. take. And, and the thing is, is like we said, Seth MacFarlane was such a huge fan of Trek as a concept. He even made an appearance on Enterprise as an engineering yeah. crew member. Uh, and, a, and a wonderful time for him to have a walk-on cameo. But uh, he wrote this out of, uh, like you said, he wanted to play in their sandbox but really couldn't find a foothold. So he's like, fine, I'll take this and make this Star Trek with hookers and swearing and this, that, and the <laughs> other thing. But but uh, he went and he's created something that is is uh, equal parts funny, dramedy, Dramedy, I guess, is the word that they use. Is dramedy, drama, comedy. They do, yeah. Uh, which I hate those uh, portmanteau words, but whatever. What are you going to do? I but, like them if they make sense. Dramedy's a little forced, but it, 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 it does apply in this instance. But they've taken it and, and given it the ability to have those serious Trek beats. And one of the things, and I know John Champions mentioned it with his, his co-hosts on the Mission Log podcast. He says, most of the time when Trek tries to force comedy... It just, it falls flat because they're not, that's not what they're for. That's not really right. their, their... It's not their, their audience and it's not their, right. their tone. Right. So they're mostly drama with a little bit of comedy sprinkled in here and there. Whereas the Orville gives them the opportunity to be both and embrace both fully. And it's really kind of fun because, like you said, you go into it at Nisa first... Expecting just dick and fart jokes, yeah. and you know if it had been that, I'd have still watched it, but it wouldn't have had uh, quite the grasp on me that it does, and it turned it really quickly because they were able to balance this 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 comedy and drama and you know lightheartedness and seriousness, 
they were able to capture a lot of people and just kind of hold on to them because something that could have easily just been taken as a one-off spoof, uh, it earns its weight really quickly. Yes. And uh, we've got uh, a lot of really talented actors in this program. And so we're going to name a couple of the mainstay cast, uh, not the least of which is Seth MacFarlane himself, uh, who plays Ed Mercer, the captain of uh, Mm -hmm. the USS Orville. Uh, we got Adrian Pilecki, who plays uh, the first officer, uh, his ex-wife, Kelly. Commander Kelly Grayson. Yeah. You've got, uh, oh, I love this woman so much. And that's because of my deep and abiding love of not just T- Deep Space Nine, which she appeared, but also uh, 24 in the early seasons of yeah. Series 24. Uh, Penny Johnson Gerald, who plays Dr. Claire Finn. Brilliantly, um, brilliant, and and she's uh, a single mother with her two kids on board this uh, uh, Union starship. And like I said, I loved her in Deep Space Nine, where she played uh, Cassidy Yates, uh, mm-hmm. the love interest and 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 partner of Ben Sisko. Uh, but she also was uh, the president's scheming, devious first lady wife in uh, Twenty Four. Yeah, and I forget I forget her name in that, but. Uh, I loved her in that, and and it's good to see this because this is a whole other side of her that you don't get to see. That the, the comedy chops come out, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, speaking of comedy chops, you got Scott Grimes. Uh, Scott Grimes, one of the few people to actually really make it uh, out of child stardom intact. I think it's just pretty much him, Neil Patrick Harris, and Kurt Russell uh, that that sort of made it out of uh, of child stardom without you know going to rehab. Um, or, or turning into a Republican, uh, you know. <laughs> so yeah, he plays uh, the, the 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 helmsman, the pilot, Lieutenant, Gordon, Lieutenant Malloy. Gordon Malloy. Yeah, and I didn't he's realize also the that he's best friend of Ed Mercer. Right, I didn't realize he was the voice of Steve Smith on American Dad. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. But uh, he's great. He was actually married to Adrian Palicki for just a little bit. Yeah, uh, some sort of behind the scenes drama. Yeah, but. Uh, uh, Peter Macon uh, is also uh, a member of the cast. He plays uh, Lieutenant Commander Bordas on mm-hmm. the show, and he's kind of your your stodgy wharf Klingon type. And I think uh, he's my favorite character. If I had to pick one, I love Claire. She's kind of the heart of the show. Right. But uh, if I have to pick a favorite character, and we can that's the thing about we, as we run this down, we can kind of backtrack a little bit once we once we get all the the characters out of the way and sort of like outline a little bit how they sort of dovetail into character archetypes and tropes, but I don't want to interrupt with the process, so please... No, we'll, co- we'll, come, we'll come back to, to Bordas. I have yeah. a couple things to say about him, but uh, next we got Halston Sage, uh, who was a Nickelodeon actress back in the day, uh, becomes on as Lieutenant Alara Katain, who plays a security officer, and they're a really strong, if slight-looking species, and so... Uh, yeah, the a, a lot of really good... uh, they tend to be... Kind of uh, super strong space elves in a way because they kind of have pointy ears and very delicate features uh, as a species. But because their planet has a much higher gravity, which factors into an episode or two, uh, they kind of have that Superman effect where they can leap tall buildings in a single bound. So she's a very slight uh, elfin lady, but she's the head of security uh, because she happens to be able to, you know, uh, tear doors off their hinges and, and lift entire bulkheads that have fallen out of the bench press a pickup and, and, truck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I love the little riff between her and uh, 
the, the shorthand between uh, Katane and uh, Mercer. Where yeah. He just he knows he can't do something. He steps aside. And he says, "Hey, why don't you open this jar of pickles for me?" Doors jammed. Alara, you want to open this jar of pickles for me? I loosened it for you. And it's it's a wonderful that's... recurring line that, that that comes back to be a uh, a wonderful moment between the two of them later on in the series. But right, because and, uh, she, she chose which... to leave the series at one point. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, uh, if you haven't watched the Orville, we recommend that you watch the Orville. We'll try to keep the spoilers to a minimum. We'll touch on a couple of things here, but like, it's it's going to be inevitable that uh, we want you to watch the show. So we'll Absolutely. try and keep spoilery things, but you know, we'll we'll, we'll definitely run it down. Um, and then uh, next is is a, a wonderful actor Jay Lee, and yes. uh, he plays he plays uh, uh, he plays a great role on the show that changes over the course of Lieutenant, the show. Lieutenant um, John Lamar. Yeah, and then he becomes Lieutenant Commander John Lamar at one point after a, a really interesting character development. Right. But he's uh, he's fantastic. Um, there's a guy named Mark Jackson who kind of winds up being the Doug Jones of the uh, the thing, the Anthony Daniels of the thing, right. because he plays Isaac, who is uh, a a non organic artificial life form, right. and uh, he's very pivotal for the show in ways that we can like touch on but not necessarily delve too deeply into. Right. And then kind of rounding out the rest of the series regulars, uh, Jessica Shore uh, is another. Uh, she plays uh, Tala Kiali, and she's another Zalean. Uh, who is another one of these sort of elfin super strong species, and she takes over for Alara Katan uh, when she decides to retire. And then there are some other wonderful um, recurring characters, most notably um, the late great Norm MacDonald, oh, yes. who plays a character called Yafit. And I love Yafit for several reasons, but we'll get to that in a minute. But as we kind of like, we, we got to backtrack a bit because we'll go back up to the top. And sort of like break out what makes each of these characters so special. But I, Yafit is near and dear to my heart for a lot of reasons. And not just because of the actor who portrays Yafit. But, yeah. So, first of all, Seth MacFarlane in the lead role and also the captain's chair of the Orville. Right. Um, Seth MacFarlane has done a lot of voice work. Uh, I just watched a Wired Autocomplete interview YouTube video with him. Where he answers some of the most frequently Googled questions about him. And... He, you know, some of them were how he got his start, this, and that, and the other thing. And he sort of, like, stepped away as a creative force, as a showrunner, for uh, both um, Family Guy and American Dad some time ago. He's still very much involved. He's an executive producer, and he does quite a few voices. He famously does Brian, Stewie, um, Peter Griffin, Peter, and, yeah. also, uh, and also Quagmire. Very famously. So he does voices, and he also does quite a few voices on American Dad. He plays Roger the Alien. He plays Stan the Dad. But his involvement in those shows is kind of like a distant boss uh, and also voice talent. Um, Since he kind of surrendered creative control to do work on other projects, one of which was the Orville. But the Orville really marks his first series regular role in front of the camera. And... I find that interesting because he's always kind of been like a voice actor and an executive producer and a, a behind-the-scenes guy. Yeah, a behind-the-scenes guy. But he's out there front and center with his giant human face hanging out, and he is a surprisingly good actor. He's got quite a bit of range. Um, he's got a very emotive delivery. He's got a very expressive uh, countenance. So I, you know, anybody who's sort of like doubted. That, you know, can Seth MacFarlane step out from behind the microphone and out of the director's chair and actually be in front of the camera for a change? Yeah, dude's great on this fucking show. He's really, 
the center of everything. He, he's he's the captain. He's he's not just the showrunner and the guy who had the idea and the guy who said, "Hey, I'm going to make Trek with you know Blackjack and Hookers," but he's he's the center of the show in terms of the characters as well. And holy shit, does he do a fantastic job! Um, he 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 is a classic starship captain in the mold of classic starship captains uh, in the, in the tradition of Trek. Because he understands he's not perfect. He, he makes mistakes sometimes. And so he holds himself to a high standard of performance. But he also has a little bit of imposter syndrome. And that kind of they, comes yeah, back they, as a boomerang plot point. They've let him have such great vulnerability. Uh, yes. And, and like I said, one of the main plot points for Ed Mercer was that uh, uh, him and Kelly got divorced. Uh, due to a little bit of infidelity on Kelly's part. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, uh, she starts working behind the scenes uh, to get him in a position where he can get out there again because he spent at least a year after the divorce just kind of shell-shocked and, and an empty, hollow person. Yeah. And she was nudging admirals behind the scenes to get him this command on this lower-tier ship, which is the Orville. The Orville was just a an exploration vessel. It wasn't even like... Like in, in Star Trek, the Enterprise is always the... The flagship. So in the TOS and in uh, Next Generation, uh, the main ship, the the ship that you see is the flagship of the Federation. Uh, this yeah. is not that. It's not a garbage no. scow by any stretch of the imagination, but it is. Just but it's very a middle much... tier cruiser, right? And and so she pulls the strings with the Admiralty and gets him a, a position on the Orville in a way to. Put some ground underneath of him again to give him some place to stand yeah. and move and grow, because she knows she screwed up and she wanted to get him back on track, uh, which of course gets summarily thrown out the window when they reveal that she's his first officer, and it really yeah. felt like she's babysitting him for quite a while. But they were able to mature and grow their friendship they, and they become have this fantastic friends again. Dynamic. Yes, their their chemistry as both. Uh, captain and first officer, and also as people who used to be in a relationship together, it, there, there's so much texture and nuance in the interplay of the different levels of the relationship, and it's just brilliant, and I, I love to see it. And of course, Adrienne Palicki is a fantastic actress. Um, yeah. We've seen her in a lot of great things. She actually did a, a an, an unaired Wonder Woman pilot a number of years ago. There was going to be a TV series, kind of like uh, in the very early days of the DCEU, that didn't get picked up. Uh, but she uh, wound up pivoting and uh, played... Um, uh, Bobby Morse, oh, Mockingbird. Yes. Mo- Bobby Morse, Mockingbird, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, and then she left the show, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., to do The Orville, uh, starting in 2017. And she is an absolutely fantastic actress, and she does an amazing job on the show, sort of like selling this, you know, I, I screwed up. I screwed up and I'm trying to fix things for my ex. Um, and, 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 and also she winds up through circumstance kind of being on the Orville with him as his second in command. And they're just, their chemistry is amazing and I absolutely love it. Absolutely. Um, they're so great. And then kind of traveling down the list a little bit... Um, of the other folks on the show, Penny Johnson Gerald, uh, as you've already mentioned, she uh, a veteran of Twenty Four and also of Deep Space Nine, just an amazing actress, and she plays Claire, the ship's physician, Claire Finn, and she's a single mom with two young sons. She's trying to take care of an entire ship's worth of health concerns, uh, and she also is shown to be uh, very good with also psychological counseling throughout the course of the show, because right. again, a lot of these characters are very human, even if they're not human. 
strictly speaking, and very vulnerable. And so she is the ship's psychologist. She's the ship's physician. And yeah, she's she is, like, in many ways, the she's the heart and, of the show, I think. Troy and Crusher kind of combined. Yes. If we're going for TNG uh, takeaways. And she's a magnificent actress, and her character is just so sympathetic. And she she really is the the uh, the heart of the show. And then Scott Grimes. Right. Scott Grimes is such a fantastic actor, too. <laughs> and he plays not just the helmsman, uh, rough around the edges, but the best pilot in the entire Union, you're uh, which Tom is their Paris version of the Planetary of, Federation. You're, you're yes. Tom Paris of, of Voyager, kind of a ruffian, kind of a... Uh, Black sheep, odd duck, shouldn't be where he is, yeah. but he is. Uh, the, the organization that's an analogous to the United Federation of Planets is the Planetary yeah. Union, so they refer to it as the Union. Um, but he's the reported to be the best pilot in the Union, and he is Ed's best friend for many, many years. And so when Ed, they take a chance on him, and he gets command of the ship, he is able to name his pilot, and the Admiralty of the Union kind of roll their eyes a little bit. Well, are you really sure you want that guy on there? He's, uh, he's, he's like... Maverick buzzing the tower. He's he's got a a reputation of being a prankster and kind of a fuck up, but he is hands down, as is proven time and time again, the best pilot in the union, and he's the guy who flies the ship. And he is a and prankster, then, and he is a fuck up. Next, uh, he, but he he's he's kind of the he is the comedy relief on a comedy show. So he's full of double duty in a lot of ways. And yeah. Peter Macon, uh, as Lieutenant Commander Bordis, I think he's my favorite character. He is. The Mocklins are the, are the race to which he belongs. Um, and there's so much fun shit that goes on with the Mocklins uh, that kind of comes back and back and back and back. Not not um, just fun shit, but they, they really tackle a lot of very sensitive topics, specifically yes. as it relates to uh, Mocklin physiology and Mocklin culture. Uh, and, and again, not to get too heavy with the spoilers or anything, but the show's been out for like five years where you've been. Um, yeah. They have one episode in particular where they address, well, not one. They kind of stretch it out, but there's one main episode that focuses on. It's a recurring on, plot point, yeah. Right. The Mocklins themselves are a species of all males. Um, and if you're born female as a Mocklin, they do a surgery and correct it. And it's so considered a birth defect. Right. Being born female is a birth defect. And, and it's so said to happen once only seven, every 75 years. It's an incredibly rare birth defect. And and so it, it's kind of like, much like, and I think, again, John Champion, uh, the, the entire thrust of, uh, of, of the Mission Log podcast is we're going to take a look at these social issues that were touched upon in right. episodes of Trek on every series that have come out. And we're going to kind of discuss how they dovetail with the zeitgeist of the time, how they hold up. Um, as, as sort of like reflected through a modern lens. And just because Trek has always been a series that, that handles social issues um, in, in, via allegory and metaphor, um, the Orville, has that's their entire thing too. So this thing touches on a lot of different layers within this Mocklin culture. Uh, first and foremost, like, is... One of the things that kind of comes into it, the Mocklins are, they're a very industrial species. Their entire planet of Mocklis is, is covered completely by industry. They are the main weapons dealers. Uh, they produce all the weapons in the Union, and their, their weapons are of top quality. Their role in the Planetary Union is to be weapons manufacturers, and they're very, very good at it. And they're shown to be very good at it through various upgrades and different developments uh, in the weaponry throughout the series, both handheld weapons and also ship weapons. They're, they're very, very good at it. But because they are a... Uh, for lack of a better uh, reference, they're a Klingon-like species in that they're very sort of like 
gruff, incredibly strong, very stoic, kind of warlike in a way. They have a, 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 an undercurrent of, of extremity to their culture, but they're also incredibly um, firm and stoic. They're, they're, they're like uh, Klingons, but with a dash of Vulcan stoicism thrown in for good measure to kind of like combine a couple of tropes. Um, but yeah, this touches on the episode where uh, Bordis and his mate Clyden, uh, they, they produce a child, um, that, that's funny in and of itself because Mocklin's reproduced via egg, but their child, <laughs> Topa, is born as a female, which apparently is very rare in, in, uh, in Mocklin culture. Um, and Clyden does live with his mate Bordis on the ship. Um, that's their home. Uh, Bordis has kind of, to, again, for lack of a better word, somewhat assimilated into the, 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 the union a little bit. Um, but he's still a very proud Mocklin, and Mocklin culture is very specific. And right. in Mocklin and, and culture, Clyden, the child is born female. Yeah, Clyden is very, very adherent to uh, Mocklin, Mocklin culture. tradition. Yes. Yeah, uh, Bordis being a member of the Union, an active member of the military, is a little bit more uh, ingrained into the, the the norms of the Union. But when the child is born female, uh, they request a a uh, uh, a detour to Mockless so the child can undergo the corrective procedure to correct her birth defect and become a male because the Mocklins are, at least we believe at that point, an all-male species. Um, and of course the ship, uh, the doctor, uh, Claire, as well as Ed, are like, absolutely fucking not. No way in hell we're going to do that. You're going to perform surgery and you're going you're gonna to do a gender reassignment surgery on an infant? No way. And so it, it first and foremost ties into um, a transgender thing. But because this is an infant we're talking about, the infant hasn't developed their own gender identity yet. Uh, so it ties into that a little bit. It definitely touches on some LGBTQ issues, but it also la more largely touches on cultural sensitivity. We, as uh, a certain culture, should not judge another culture. And of course, in this case, it's another planet, but it's a metaphor for Earth cultures. Right. We should not judge another Earth culture by the standards of our own. So what we consider barbaric or out of the question is just their normal. And we kind of have to be sensitive to that, but at the same time, it is objectively barbaric to do gender reassignment surgery on an infant. So it becomes this multi-layered metaphor and this this incredibly uh, nuanced argument. And eventually, uh, Bordis, sort of like, because he is a member of the Union, he's able to kind of see the way of the rest of the planets and say, well, you know, I guess maybe they're right. Maybe that is something that's that's a little bit barbaric, and maybe Mocklins are a little backward on it. But because Clyden has equal uh, parent, parental rights over Topa, uh, Clyden insists. Clyden is very traditional. He is very Mocklin. He's not of the Union. He's just a Mocklin who lives on a Union ship. So it, it becomes this whole thing, and it's really, really fascinating to see how it plays out. Um, I, I've already spoiled enough. I won't really ruin the, uh, the, the resolution of that. But it is a thing that kind of comes back. But that was kind of like the second or third episode overall, after we did some world building and some character establishment, and hey, here are your characters are going to be on a starship. Um, that was really the first sort of like Trek-like yeah. social issue that we're going to bring up, both the the, the transgender thing, uh, the infants, you know, how much do we want to... And Bordis makes the analogy, 
Uh, I believe there is a condition on your planet that is considered a birth defect called a cleft palate. Would it not be considered barbaric to not correct this if your child was born with a cleft palate? It would cause them difficulty later in life. And Ed says, well, yeah, it's a cleft palate. I mean, it's a birth defect. That Well, being born female on Machlis is very much the same thing. She will be shunned. She will not be able to participate in society. She will be uh, a, a dri driven out. And so it is incumbent upon us as responsible parents to perform the procedure and and the way he frames it, you go, well, I mean, it's they consider it a birth defect, so maybe Shit. that's right for them. And yeah. You kind of have to see, you see both sides of it, you know? Uh, so that is fascinating. And then... They use so, Bordis like, and Clyden to, to settle a lot of different... Uh, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to say they use them for comic relief, but they do definitely have a lot of uh, uh, serious points. Uh, there's another smaller point that I really loved. Uh, I want to say it was mid-first season. Where they uh, they discover a time capsule uh, yeah. from back in the day, and, and this I is just love that episode. This is the B plot because the main pl uh, the main thrust of that whole story is is Gordon finds a cell phone with this woman's information in it and puts it into the computer and he tells the computer to extrapolate who this person is, uh, and then subsequently in the simulator falls in love with this person. That's the simulator the, being Orville's version of the holodeck. Right. So that's the A plot. The B plot is one of the things that they find in the sim or in this uh, uh, time capsule is cigarettes. And a package of cigarettes. Like a package of Marlboro Golds, if I remember right. Right. And they don't know what it is at first. And and and, 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 and he picks one up and he, he eats it. And they said, no, that's not how you intake these. You're supposed to light one end said of You're it. supposed to ignite the end and then inhale the fumes. Dr. Finn said, the tip is to be ignited and the smoke inhaled. The sensation is wonderful. I have never experienced such a flavor. We must have more. 500 cigarettes. Right. Well, let's and try so that. Him and Bordis, or Bordis and Clyden uh, immediately get hooked on, on the nicotine. And he's smoking on the bridge. He's smoking in his quarters. The halls are filled with a cloud of fucking cigarette smoke. Uh, and people and, are uh, complaining. So they, they go to Claire about it, who's the <laughs> ship's doctor, and she does an analysis. And uh, Because, to a certain extent, the Orville is, is portrayed as taking place in a future utopia, kind of like Trek, where right. this is the place we're trying to get to. It's idealistic. As humans, we aspire to this. So they make the point about things like, uh, we don't really have currency. Our reputation is our wealth. Our accomplishments are our wealth. We don't, you know, we don't have money. Um but uh, so Claire goes to, uh, to to Bordis and Clyden and does an analysis and says, "Fascinating. People, humans don't really smoke anymore because it was kind of it fell out of fashion because it was dangerous and disgusting and whatever else. But because uh, Bordis and Clyden happen to be Mocklin and they happen to stumble upon cigarettes, there is apparently Mocklins have ten times the nicotine receptors in their Mocklin brains." Uh, that humans do, so he and Clyden immediately get hooked on the cigarettes and they start smoking like chimneys. <laughs> and then uh, Claire says, I could formulate an anecdote uh, that, that could counteract the effects of the nicotine in your system, but it'll take me a couple of days, but in the meantime, you both have to quit smoking. So Bordis agrees to it, Clyden <laughs> agrees to it, and they both immediately start going into the DTs. They're bitching at each other, they're getting irritable, they're sneaking smokes and the other one's not looking. Fucking, they're show, hiding them show literally. Me where the cigarettes it. are. Everywhere in the quarters. They're literally yeah. hidden everywhere. 
Clyden, I found a cigarette. You are hiding cigarettes now? Oh, do not tell me that you are not, Bordas. And he's like, show me where the cigarettes are. So Bordas pulls one off a picture frame, pulls one out of a flower pot, and then he opens up a, a, a sofa cushion and dumps <laughs> out about a cushion. thousand smokes out of the... <laughs> it's fucking hysterical. And eventually Claire does formulate the antidote for the uh, the, the Mocklin, uh uh, nicotine receptors and they, they're able to quit but not before they get into like a knockdown drag out fight where they're ready to kill each <laughs> other which again is another plot point I won't spoil but so you can tell I've spent more time talking about Bordis than I did my amp so Bordis is my favorite character on the show I think but there are so many great ones like the next one on the list we're just running down the IMDB list here is Jay Lee as Lieutenant Commander John Lamar yep and John Lamar is great he's originally portrayed as he's he's up at the helm with Gordon and they're both portrayed as kind of like wisecracking assholes who play off each other and like Beavis yeah. and Butthead to a degree. He's, like the, he's, the, he's the, navi- the navigator to uh, uh, Malloy's pilot. Uh, yeah. And yeah, he's played as a slacker, kind of an underachiever. A streetwise wisecracking kind of guy. You could tell and he's smart, point, but he's just not really focused. Th- th- at some point, I don't remember the context of it, even though I just watched it for the third time through. Um, <laughs> something happens, and Kelly and Ed are digging through personnel files on the, the Union database. We come to find out that uh, John Lamar, apart from Isaac, who has, he's always quick to remind people, um, he's a, uh, a hyper-intelligent artificial life form. John's the smartest guy on the ship. His IQ scores and his aptitude are off the charts. But he kind of plays it dumb a little bit. And so they, Kelly, the, uh, the lieutenant commander, the second command, uh, presses him to, John, you, you should be living up to your potential. You can do so much more. In our society, our reputation and our accomplishments or our wealth, are, are you happy just kind of like being like a navigator? And he's like, yeah. I mean, where I grew up, I, I grew up, you know, kind of tough on the streets. And, and uh, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to be a, an egghead or a brainiac. So I kind of just, you know, I played it down. I dumbed it down. And so he's, she says, well, you, you really should be, you know, doing more. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm cool. Just kind of like hanging out in the middle. Um, but they, they find out that he's way smarter than, than he comes off and they give him a shot and he winds up becoming head of engineering, which is just a really neat development because he's such a cool character. Um, but I just, you know, he's fantastic too. And then that brings us to Isaac and Isaac is in many ways kind of like the MacGuffin of the entire series and in ways that I won't spoil if you haven't seen it. But again, like Saint said, it's like fucking five years. Get with the program. But anyway, Isaac is sort of like a combination of of Data uh, from Next Generation and like the Borg because he belongs to a race of, of, of artificial life forms called the Kalon. They have an outward appearance of being uh, like an android, uh, not like Data, where he's human in appearance. He is humanoid, but he's very clearly a robot. He, he's bipedal, but... Yeah, he's bipedal, but he sort of like in the classic tradition of the android, I am here to study human behavior and report back to my people so that they may decide, based on human behavior and the behavior of other species on the ship, whether or not they wish to join the Union. I am on an information gathering mission. So he's the ship's engineer, uh, and he kind of handles like, he interfaces with the computer, he's he's a walking database, he is hyper-intelligent, but because he can't feel emotion, he's very cold and detached not like Data. Data wanted to be human. He wanted to kind of learn emotion. And, right. of course, there's the f- sort of famous episode where where Q, you know, makes him laugh and he sort of, like, feels what that's like because um, he wants that. Isaac doesn't want that. He doesn't want to feel emotion. He doesn't really understand emotion. He, his, his whole mission on the ship is to study human emotion to report back to his superiors to find out whether they want to join the Union or not. At least that's what he tells us, but, again, I'm not going to ruin that. But he doesn't understand 
human emotion. He seeks to understand it because he wants to understand it, but he doesn't want to participate in it. So it really least, becomes this thing where... At least at first. He does have yeah. a really interesting story arc with Dr. Finn. Very where much so. they become romantically entangled, uh, whether or not he's treating it like an experiment or treating it like a uh, information gathering, like you said. Uh, they, I feel like in in his own non-emotional way, they do develop feelings for each other. In addition, uh, Claire's kids as well. Yeah, yeah. And so they they try they, to humanize really, him in a different way. They come than to they see him as a parental data. figure, right? Yeah, like they I come to like, see him as a parental figure, and right. So, but he he really want he 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 wants to understand, but not participate. But then it becomes apparent to him that in order to really relate to humans, he kind of needs to at least give the appearance of participating. But his character I find fascinating because even though he sort of like has an archetype, not just in science fiction but also specifically in Trek and Trek like properties, um, because he's kind of equally like half Borg and half Data in a way. Um, but they do different stuff with him, and I find it fascinating. He's got a very specific function as a crew member, in that he can analyze data immediately, he can interface with the ship's computer and change things around, uh, but he, he also has another purpose, which I, again, I, even if you've watched the show, if you watch the show, you know what it is. If you haven't, I'm not going to fuck it up for you. But they do some really, really interesting shit with Isaac that just makes him, maybe not necessarily my favorite character, I, I adore Bordas, but he's probably the most interesting and layered character on the ship, to me. I think he's fascinating, and... He comes to be very, very pivotal um, right. as the what show they, moves forward. And a what lot of they've levels. done with him, uh, and I'm not, again, this one's a little early to spoil. It just came out a couple days ago. Yeah. But uh, what they've already done with him at the very first episode of The New Horizons Season 3, holy shit. Yeah, uh, big, and, and big stuff. There's a lot of people out there talking like, oh, they took the... Uh, they took the comedy aspect away from it, and they made it more, you know, drama for drama's sake. And yes, this episode was season three, episode one, very much super dramatic. But I feel they were still able to work the comedy in there. And I, I wouldn't, yeah. I say you've seen one episode. I wouldn't uh, uh, condemn an entire season just based off of that. But it was a very powerful episode. Uh, Big and, time and, on a lot and of I'm levels not, and for a lot of reasons. For me specifically, and and. Uh, down the road, we can get into that, but it was it was very very deep, and, and I kind of sat yeah. back in my chair after watching. Just holy shit, did they just tackle that? Because that was did. in a very very trek way, uh, a very heavy yeah. topic to ca- talk to tackle. But that's yeah. kind of what this show does. That's what this show kind of leans on. You have your 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 comedy moments. Your they they uh, trying to teach Isaac about humor. And uh, they stuck fridge magnets all over Isaac's face because Isaac just has a plain, <laughs> a plain plate for a face. I mean, it's they just a face plate. Headed him. They missed yeah. a potato headed him. Is there some reason I am the central focus of everyone's attention? Isaac, are you aware that you have Mr. Potato Head pieces all over you? <laughs> I got you, man. I totally got you. See, that's a practical joke. You put that stuff on him? <laughs> While he was recharging. Okay, okay. So now it's your turn, okay? You gotta get me. And you gotta be creative. You gotta do it when I least expect it. And this is humor. Yes! I must admit, it is quite challenging. However, I will do my best. The hell? What happened to your leg? He amputated it while I was sleeping! Ha ha. Got you. What? 
I have retaliated. That is my practical joke. This isn't a joke, you psychopath! You dismembered me! And so Isaac, in an attempt to, to joke back, cuts off Malloy's leg. I mean... <laughs> I am attempting to understand human humor. <laughs> and so Gordon goes to get out of bed. Yeah, they, 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 he wants to understand humor, so they put him... Well, that's funny, you didn't expect it. And my external sensors do not detect, and he's got Mr. Potato Head stuff stuck all over his face. So now, now you got to get me back. I prank you. Now you got to get me back. So he cuts off Gordon's <laughs> leg, which in the future is not as big of a deal because uh, <laughs> just he can give just go to Claire one. in sick bay, and she can put on a, a new leg on him. But he's, he's he he winds up getting put on sick leave while his new leg regenerates. But then they need somebody to fly them through an ion storm or something. So he, he limps back onto the bridge with this like almost vestigial fucking Deadpool baby <laughs> leg. And it's, okay, again, I'm ruining great jokes, but still, it's fucking brilliant. And I love it's it. inevitable. we got to so, talk about it a little bit. but we got to talk about it. So then we're going to run down a couple of the other characters that are yeah, yeah. pretty important and then do some, some quick one-shots. But So that brings us to the, the pair of Zelayan security chiefs. Uh, first being Alara Katan, played by Halston Sage, and second being uh, Talak Yali, played by Jessica Shore. Both are fantastic in their own ways, and even though they belong to the same species, they're both very different. The Salaeans, right. like I said before, uh, they're, very, they're like space elves in a way. They're very, uh, especially the women, are shown to be very delicately featured and slight, but uh, they also are incredibly strong because of the incredible gravity on their planet. Right. Uh, and it's so much so that, like, uh, uh, on, on an away mission... Gordon brings a water bottle, like a chrome water bottle, and throws it out the back of the shuttle and out, out, out the back of the gravity well, and immediately goes bam, and like falls on the ground and flattens like a soda can that's gotten stepped on. The the uh, Salean planet is much, I think it's like they said five to six times larger than Earth, so she has five to six times the strength of a human person. Right. Um, and it, it, she, it's shown to be uh, used to great effect. Although, because she is young, she's said to be 23 years old in the show when she gets the the, uh, the the head of security position on the Orville, she's very untested, and initially the crew has some reservations about, okay, so she's Salean, so we know she's very strong, but what about her character? You know, Is she going to be able to handle the pressures of being the security chief? And she has a really, really good arc, but she also has like a lot of self-doubt, and it's, it's kind of played for, again, like you said earlier, vulnerability, and it's pretty cool. But she does end up leaving the show, um, after the first uh, season. Well, a little, a little bit of the second season. And then she's replaced by uh, Jessica Shore as Tala Kiali, who is also Salean, but has a, a very different character. She's a little bit more self-assured, a little bit more, um, not aggressive, but a little bit more sort of like, um, it's hard to say. Not I'm not going to say rough around the edges, because she's not. She's polished, but she's a little more confident, we'll say, um, than, than Alara was. But they're both Salean, so they both have the same sort of relative superpowers to humans. But they're just fascinating characters, and I love them both. Um, and I think it's pretty cool that they have created a species on this show that is uh, able to sort of embody the concept of female empowerment in a way that isn't pandering, and it's not uh, played for laughs, and it's not done in a way that's eye-rolling. They just they have these women on the show that are security chiefs, and they're just... they could you know, bench press a fucking pickup. They're great. Um, but the other thing that's really cool about that, I think, and this is a side note more than anything, um, and the show really starts, they bring in a lot of Trek veterans, not just Penny Johnson. Jones oh, yeah. Oh, as yeah. Claire Finn. But we'll be watching the show, and I'm not as much of a Trek fan as a lot of other people are, but I know, you know, quite a bit of, uh, of, of, of Trek. 
But um, my girlfriend is a very big Trek fan and has watched quite a bit of Trek. And so she'll go, oh, that's so-and-so. And she'll point to the screen and, and you know, we'll... Uh, We'll see a, a Trek veteran character actor pop yeah. up in like a supporting role on the Orville, and uh, um, Alara's parents, um, oh, Ildis Katan, her father is is uh, um, Bob Picardo. Yeah, is, is Bob Picardo, who is very famous the Doctor on love... Deep Space Nine. He's got such a great delivery in everything that he does. I am just yeah. a huge Smegan fan of, of of Picardo as in general. To be sure, and he he's he plays a. Uh, 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 Lara's father, who's a, a university professor on the show, and right. I won't spoil that whole thing, but he's he's absolutely great. But that okay, same that's... episode, we also got Peter Billingsley, uh, who yes. also uh, is notable for playing uh, the Doctor on Enterprise, Doctor Flox. Yes. So that was interesting as well. And in the episode that I mentioned earlier, where they replicate the cigarettes, uh, the head scientist who found the time capsules, played by Tim Russ. Who, of course, uh-huh. plays Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on uh, Star Trek Voyager. So they wind up sprinkling in quite a bit of really, yeah. uh, hey, it's that which, guy, Trek veteran. Which is great. It's fantastic. It gives it such more, it gives it a lot more weight. Like, this is and an actual thing. Yeah. Their audience is, it's going to be largely Trek fans. So they're, they're, they're putting in a lot of fan service in terms of, of casting really well-known Trek veterans. But it so doesn't you know, feel like fan service. It feels natural. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So we'll we'll run down the rest of the list. A lot of these supporting characters are quick one shotters. Uh, Chad Coleman, who's a, a Walking Dead veteran, as Clyden, who is Bordas's mate. Um, he's a fantastic actor, but Clyden's a bitch. I mean, he's my least favorite character <laughs> on the show, not because he's a bad uh, actor or because he Clyden acts is a bad perfectly. character. The no, character is a bad character. But we're supposed to dislike him because yeah. he kind of embodies a lot of character traits that are undesirable he's a racist yeah he's a he doesn't like uh other he doesn't respect other species demands respect for his own customs and culture um he's a misogynist uh because he is you know because he's a mocklin and their planet is is exclusively male or so we thought um he does not respect or he's disgusted by women of any Mm -hmm. species and there's one episode in particular where he comes up and talks to Bordas, and Bordas is sitting with Kelly, who's his immediate supervisor, his immediate superior. Uh, Bordas is third in command on the ship, and so he's talking to Kelly, who's second in command. And Clyden comes up and, and starts making demands of Bordas, and and he uh, Bordas kind of calls him out a little bit. He's like, oh, "You are disgusted by women. No, I am not. You are a misogynist. I am not." You are. You have not even acknowledged, much less spoken to Commander Grayson. And, you know, she is not my commander. I you know, merely live on the ship. She still has, you know, and so they're fighting about it. And meanwhile, Kelly's sitting there kind of pressing her lips together all awkward because she's trying not to be insensitive to Mocklin culture. So Clyden's a bitch, but he's supposed to be. So in that, he's very effective. You're going to hate him because you're supposed to. He's just, he embodies the worst character traits. And so then, going down the list, we got uh, Kai Wenner. And B.J. Tanner as Ty and Marcus Finn, respectively, who are Claire's uh, sons. And they're great. They both have a very distinct character. Um, and they, they, characters, and they're, they're just great actors and great kids. Mm-hmm. And it just they give Claire a lot of really great character motivations and a lot of really cool stuff to do. Um, and then we get into the, the quadrant of Admiralty, which I think is pretty great. <laughs> uh, They've got Ed some has, really good at yeah. Admirals. And they're just... Ed has superior officers and yeah. to whom he reports once in a while. And uh, there are four different actors who are seen to be Ed's superiors on the show, the Admirals. And they are uh, 
they kind of do a thing with the uniforms, just like Trek does. Instead of like uh, you know pips on the collar, um, like in Next Generation, they have bars on the shoulder, kind of like a classic uh, American military uniform. So Ed has four bars; he's the captain. Kelly has three bars, and Bordis has three bars. Only his middle bar is slightly smaller than her middle bar because he's just below her in rank. Um, but the admirals have a ring of five stars and a purple uniform. Much like Trek, the uniforms are color-coded. The, the commanders uh, are all in blue. The science and medical are all in green. Uh, engineering is in orange. Uh, security is all in red. Uh, but the admirals are in purple, which is, I think, a nice touch because purple is, is, has kind of traditionally been like a very royal, it, regal color. And it pops but and it stands the, out and it separates them from yeah. everybody else. When the admirals either show up in person or show up on the screen to give Ed some direction or let him know what's going on back at uh, at Union Central, they're these really like nice purple uniforms. They look super fucking sharp. But the admirals uh, are played, I think, in the order that we see them by Victor Garber, who's a fantastic oh. character actor uh, from, from just forever. He's been in just about everything uh, lately. Of He's course, so great. He was uh, one half of Firestorm on uh, yeah. Legends of Tomorrow, which is great. Victor Garber plays Admiral Halsey, and then next most frequently we see Kelly Hu, who's also fucking fantastic, and she plays Admiral Zawa. And then, very surprisingly, out of nowhere, playing it very straight, even though he's mostly a comedy actor, we have Ted Danson as Admiral Perry. Yeah. And he just shows up, and he, because he's got the square jaw and the big, very authoritative white head of hair, and uh, he shows up and, and does some really great character work. And then equally on footing with him, uh, with, with three episodes under his belt, is Ron Canada. Who's another? He plays Admiral Tucker, another fantastic character actor. Right. Um, <clears throat> so they're really pulling out the big guns on that. And so kind of just going down the list, we got other other folks uh, like we mentioned. Robert Picardo is Ildis Catan, who's fantastic. Uh, Will Sasso of Mad TV plays the barkeep. Um, well, one of the bar- he runs the restaurant. He plays Jason Musa. Alexander uh, played one too. Yeah, we see Jason Alexander show up as the bartender a couple of times. Uh, Patrick Warburton. Another sort of like uh, frequent Seth uh, MacFarlane collaborator shows up as Lieutenant Farrell, and he's under heavy makeup, but there's no mistaking that basso profundo voice he rocks. Fantastic. Um, so just some really, really fantastically great actors and really great character studies that are, in a lot of ways, archetypal and sort of like dovetail with tropes and sort of recognize character models, but they do interesting things with them and set them apart enough so that they really, they, they perform the function of a trope. A trope is not a cliche. A trope is just a storytelling device that you can already count on to be present in the mind of your audience so you don't really have to explain it. And right. all these characters really just fit in beautifully with, with, the, with, with archetypes and tropes so that you, when Bordas shows up and he's standing there very rigidly speaking without contractions in a very deep voice and kind of looking straight forward and being very Klingon-like, you, you sort of understand, well, the Mocklins are the Klingons of this universe in a way. But they also do a lot of stuff that the Klingons don't do. Uh, when you see Isaac, you sort of realize, oh, he's the Data character because he's... Uh, he, he's, he's got a dash of Vulcan thrown in because he's emotionless and stoic also, but he's mostly uh, android and Borg. Um, but then you've got, you know, the, uh, the every character, just you automatically understand them the second they show up. And they do have to kind of do the exposition thing. Like on the first episode, uh, Seth MacFarlane as the captain is standing there saying, well, let's, this is, I have a new ship, I have a new detail, this is my new crew. And he, he runs down all of the major characters we'll come to know and love over the next season and a half, two seasons, going on three. Uh, and they introduce themselves to him and have a little exchange with him, which you would do if you were 
assigned to a ship for the first time. But it's also a neat expository trick so we can meet the characters and learn what they're about and what their species is and what their role will be on the ship. So just everything about this show is so well done. It's such a love letter to Trek. It's not a parody. It's not even an affectionate parody. It is absolutely a love letter to Trek and the Trek fandom. And rather than, again, kind of coming around full circle to what we talked about right at the top, you expect Trek with dick jokes, but you get a series that does have quite a bit more effective humor than, than most you know, Trek properties, but it still, I think, can, can stand uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder with anything Trek has done in the last, especially like 20 or 30 years. Um, right. It's just a fantastic show. Absolutely, and, and, and with as much pe- grief as people are giving uh, shows like Star Trek Discovery, uh, Lower Decks, and things like that, the new Trek, there's a lot of uh, anti-woke sentiment about it. Um, which is ridiculous if you know anything about the history of Star Trek whatsoever. When did Star Trek get so woke? Fucking 66, asshole. Right. But uh, this is very much in... uh, Kind of like... I want to say they framed it kind of like Deep Space Nine. Now, I normally would go back and say they kind of framed it like Next Gen, where you've got a lot of independent episodes focusing on independent subjects, focusing on whatever moral or message that they're trying to get across at the time. And very few, if any, uh, interconnected episodes that are must-see to continue the plot forward. Now, that kind of comes to a crash at the end of Season 2. But for all intents and purposes, you've got something that kind of emulates the original series, The Next Generation, where you've got the story of the day, the monster of the day, the alien of the day, the... The message that they're trying to portray, whether it's uh, sharing is caring or don't be a dick or whatever the message is. Uh, yeah. You've got these really don't easy... Don't be a racist. <laughs> right. Episodes that you can kind of step into independently if you haven't seen the whole series and still kind of get the whole gist. Last thing I'll mention, because we're, we're running long even for us, um, I just love this show so much, is that there are, uh, in, in addition to, to there being distinct characters in the show, there are many, many distinct races of interplanetary creatures that make up not just the crew of the Orville, uh, but also sort of just like other peoples that they run into around the universe. Uh, there's the Slayans, who of course are the super strong uh, space elves, uh, who are a very scholarly society that kind of look down on military service in a lot of ways. They respect it, realize it's necessary, but they there are a lot of painters, artists, and, and, and college professors. And then there's the Mocklins, who are the Klingons. They, they have a very industrialized society that's very gruff and very violent in a lot of ways, but uh, they're very fun. And then, um, you know, obviously the humans. There's a lot of different races around the ship. Oh, hold on a second. There's one other character that I forgot to talk about, speaking of other races. We don't know what his race is called. We don't know what his people are called. But Yafit. Norm MacDonald... As Yafit. I would be I would kick myself if I forgot to mention Yafit. Because I love him for several reasons. First of all, because he is uh, Norm MacDonald. Uh, he's voiced by Norm MacDonald, but he also has quite a bit of the the, the late mannerisms. mannerisms. Yeah. He's great. But he also sort of like usurps one of the things that is a necessary limitation of uh, of a lot of sort of like sci fi series where it's like, well, they're all humanoid, they just have different foreheads. Um, you know, like a lot of people sort of. <laughs> that's like a very like, Star Trek. You know. That's a very Star Trek thing. Is this, yeah. Oh, he's got ears, and she's got a nose wrinkle, and 
Yeah. You know, oh, the, the, forehead the ridges. have different noses and all that. And they kind of do that. That's a little bit like the uh, the Saleans. They have forehead ridges and different ears. And then the ridges on their nose. But otherwise, they're very humanoid in appearance. And there are other races that kind of walk around the ship that um, they're just, they're humanoid, but they have different heads and different skin tones. And, you know, there's like these this white spiky race that kind of look like, uh, you know, puffer fish. And then there's like one yeah. of the engineers who's played by Mike Henry, who's another frequent McFarlane collaborator. He played, uh, he did the voice of Cleveland before that became very problematic because he's a white dude. Um, but Mike Henry, he's, he's a voice actor, but he plays Dan, who's one of the engineers. And he's kind of a, 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 a nerdy geek. Um and they're, they're, those are all members of the Union. But then there are other races that are not members of the Union for whatever reason. The Kalon, who are Isaac's race of artificially created beings, are, are not, they're considering being part of the Union, but their whole thing is like, well, we already have a very utopian, self-sustaining society, and we're trying to decide if joining would be of benefit to us, because we pretty much, we're smarter than you, and we kind of hang out on our own. Uh, but they live on a very distant uh, in a planet full of that's populated entirely by artificial life form robots. Uh, there are other races like the Calavon, who are some of the most intelligent species in the universe, and they view everybody else as being animals. Uh, yeah, there's the, the Planetary Union, but that's run by by chimps and monkeys and apes. They they can't really benefit us, so we're not <laughs> going to join the Union. And they they show up in a, a couple of different episodes as being very interesting. Uh, but then there's the Krill, the and the Krill. krill I have to kind of touch on that, because the Krill, they're not the big bads, but they are kind of a frequent antagonist. Um, Rather like the Klingons the, were in Next Generation. In the original series. Before no, no, the no. Klingons... Well, yeah, a little bit. I mean, Klingons kind of were one of the big bads of the original series, but yeah. they didn't portray them as heavily-handed as they did in Next Generation Deep Space Nine. Yeah. They weren't developed yeah. as well, so I, I'll give you that. But, you know, they're, they're an antagonistic race who uh, has markedly not joined the Union because they don't... They're, they're portrayed as being very religious and very extremist religious. Um, they're very violent and they, they, ha they follow a religion that says that everything that exists was created by their God and it all belongs to them and they're entitled to it and they're going to take it by force if necessary. So praise that's Avis. not exactly conducive to... Yeah, praise Avis. Uh, that's their God. So... They're not inclined to join the Union because they don't believe in, like, equality, egalitarianism, and brotherhood, and all joining together to work towards common goals. They believe they are and should be the dominant race in the universe. Everything belongs to them. Nobody else has just realized it yet. So they're just going to wipe everybody else out and fucking take everything because that is Avis's will. He's created everything that exists for them because they're they're the best species that exists. And, and so... Very there's kind of a yeah there's there's a, uh, a sort of undercurrent of like extreme religiosity, uh, whether you're talking about like you know uh, Christian extremists or or uh, you know Islamic extremists, the worst fringes of any given world religion, the krill are all that, um, and so they kind of touch on that. Uh, you know, religion is, is at least in three or four episodes, even if you don't count the ones that the krill are in, where they're kind of condemning religion as being like. You know, this whole race of hyper-religious uh, aliens is, is super warlike and they think they deserve everything and they're the dominant race because they're blessed by their god. Um, I gather that the showrunners of this show are kind of uh, atheists or just very critical of religion because the religion thing comes back as a frequent target in a couple episodes. Most notably an episode that's, I think, my favorite of the entire series called Mad Idolatry. That's the one where, uh, where the planet faces in and out of existence every 700 years. Hmm. which is fascinating. I don't want to spoil that. It's really, really well done. It's at the uh, towards the end of the first season, I think. Um, but yeah, so the Krill are kind of like the frequent 
antagonists of the Union. Because they don't want to join the Union. They think everything is theirs. Um, they they kind of have these... Uh, um, and they're kind of Romulan also in a way because their ships are kind of really... Bird-like. Uh, interestingly designed. Yeah, they're sort of like Bird of Prey-like. But yeah, so the Krill are a very fascinating race because um, sometimes... And again, I don't want to like spoil anything... But even though the Krill detest the Union because the Union is pretty much an obstacle toward them ascending to their rightful places, owning everything in the universe, sometimes their goals align and they will form an uneasy, you know, uh, detente with the Union if there's a benefit to them. But again, they're just a really, really interesting race of characters and they do a lot of interesting things with them. But it, again, I just I can't say enough great stuff about this show. The writing is great. The characters are great. The stories they tackle are great. It's, it's like Trek in all the right ways, and it, it departs from Trek in enough ways to make it its own property and interesting in its own ways. And I just, it's, it's one of my favorite shows on television. And just from the start of season three, we've got one episode under the belt. By the time you hear this, there'll probably be a second one. But it, it's, they're showing no signs of slowing down. And I'm, as, as sort of like a, a behind-the-scenes note, we're lucky we got a season three at all. Um, because there was right. so much behind-the-scenes shit that went on. Uh, season one started in 2017. Season two came a year later. And these are 10 to 12 episode seasons. They're abbreviated seasons. Um, because it is a very expensive show. Because the special effects and the makeup are ridiculously good. Um, but season three kind of ran into problems. They tried to do season... You know, they tried to start season three in 2019. And then they ran into budgetary issues. Then they came back in 2020 to try and shoot again. And of course, COVID hit and the world fucking shut down. Uh, so this episode, or this season, is ten episodes long, and it took them almost four years to shoot it. The last season came out in 2018, it's now 2022, and we're finally getting this season, because it's just apparently been like pulling teeth. Um, not just with budgets, not just with actor availability, because, you know, you get long, that long of a hiatus, you gotta feed yourself and pay your bills, keep the lights on, so you're going to do other things, and, you know, you, you keep this in your back pocket because you want to do it, and your contract doesn't do it, and you're on this show as a regular, but you still gotta eat. Um, and then, they also jumped networks. Now, the first two seasons of The Orville were on Fox. Right. And then Fox either dumped the show or Seth pulled the show. It's not really clear which way it went. But even though American Dad and Family Guy are still on Fox, uh, Seth at the most recent like entertainment stand-ups did not have very kind words for Fox. He kind of slammed Fox a little bit for not really getting the show, not really believing in the show. Not, not backing not him up, the yeah. Show. Yeah, just not, not, not being behind the show. And... Even though it's expensive and that shows, you can see the expense in the sets, the costumes, the, the makeup, the, the special effects. Fox apparently just wasn't really as behind the show as they could have been. So now they've jumped to Hulu. They're strictly a streaming series. And Hulu is throwing all kinds of money at it. You can see that in the... In, in oh, it's very evident. Well. Yeah, it's beautiful. If, even the the, uh, the actual quality of the uh, the visuals. Now, I'm not even talking about like the, the special effects. The it's, sets. It's shot on a... Yeah, the sets... The costumes are a little different and better, um, but the way that it, the actual resolution of it looks more like a movie than a TV series. They're making yeah. little tiny movies every week. Um, not tiny. They're, this first episode was like almost an hour and a half long, but they're making movies out there. Um, so they're getting some love from Hulu, and I, I'm personally very gratified to see it. Absolutely. It's, anyway. it's, the quality is still there. It's the same show. But they're, now they're able to express it in a way that 
there's more out, outside scenes. There's more uh, CGI. There's better costumes, better sets. It's like everything that you loved. It's like it's like watching a Star Trek movie. It's like you really enjoy like if give it a, whether you liked it or didn't. First Contact, Nemesis, everything. We're given the same characters, the same situations, but better. And that's kind yeah. of what we get with this. It's it's the same crew, it's the same dynamic, but better. It's it's more visually appealing. They've got better sound quality. They got yeah. better. I mean, everything's just nth degree, which I really. I even love. noticed that that Isaac as a character, his his whole appearance has been overhauled and changed. But I got off on an unforgivable tangent talking about the different races that make up the universe because I wanted to talk about why I love Yafit so much. Not only is he uh, Norm Macdonald, but Yafit very distinctly usurps the idea and these sort of like classic Trek trope based on the fact that hey. You know, we're trying to portray all these races of different aliens, but because actors are human, most of these aliens are bipedal and have arms, and they just change the heads and the foreheads and the makeup a little bit. Uh, so we're kind of explaining a way that, you know, most of the races of the universe are humanoid. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yafit is not. Not He that is at the all. character on the show who is the furthest thing from humanoid you can imagine. Yafit is a sentient gelatinous being. So he's this green lump of what looks like snot. And I remember reading an interview that, that uh, Seth MacFarlane said, he, he told the effects team, make him look like a bugger. Just make him look like a... And he's he's kind of... He can extend or flatten or, or, he's or like, make appendages on his can, body. As you remember that old uh, the Mucinex commercials with that green bugger yeah. guy? He's kind of yeah. like that, but less humanoid. He doesn't have a face. He does have a mouth if he needs to speak and communicate with the other characters on the ship. But Yafit, imagine a booger voiced by Norm Macdonald, <laughs> and you're getting there if you haven't seen. I'm, the I'm show. already laughing. But, it's full. Of, it's hilarious, and they, they use him to that. great effect. To yes. great effect, as several times he works in engineering. I'm not going to spoil he, it or anything, but yeah, no, I won't either. I'll, I'll distinctly not. But he works in engineering, and he's he's, he's a gelatinous, a sentient gelatinous being, who's a wisecracker, and and he's a. Uh, He's got some. They give him such great shit to do because obviously, when you have Norm Macdonald, you don't waste him. No. Um, but he's just got. But, but I, I love him because they've they've found a way within their budget and within special effects to make a believable, readable, recurring, beloved character who is in no way humanoid. Yeah. Because um, that is one of those things. It's easy to fall into that trap of because actors are human, you make them human. Because even though we're going around the galaxy, everybody's sort of roughly humanoid. They showed um, they showed him in the in 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 season three episode one, uh, which of course was filmed before uh, before Norm Macdonald passed away. Um, so they have Yaffet like out on the hull of the ship, uh, doing uh, refitting and repairs uh, with with Lamar and a couple other people, and he's in he's in one of the exosuits for being out in the sh- out walking around outside of the ship. And so he's bipedal for a moment, but you could tell he's just been poured into this suit. And so they come back into the ship after performing the maintenance outside of the ship, and all the other engineers just walk off wearing this uniform, but not Isaac, or not uh, Yafit. He just kind of steps through the airlock and then starts oozing out of the costume to where the, the costume just falls to the deck whole. Like it's still being worn by a husk, and just slides right out of it and goes about his day. Uh, yeah. I think it's it's visually very fantastic what they do with him. He's such a great character. I love him so much. But I'm I'm looking at my timestamp on my recording device here, and we are oh yeah, like I said running long even for us. So 
I, I'll just finish by saying that I, I, I don't mean to keep beating this dead horse, but the Orville's a good show. You should watch the show. Uh, we've given away some things here. Nothing huge. No, no uh, big, major plot delivery. points. Yeah. You know, you'll still be able to enjoy everything. Maybe a couple surprises won't hit you as hard, but still. I mean, it's just such a great show. If you're a Trek fan and you're not watching the Orville, what the fuck are you doing? And even if you're not a Trek fan, like I'm distinctly not, not because it's not great, but because I just missed the boat on it, um, it's still a great you, fucking show. You get show. to dip your toes into that kind of world yeah. for however yeah. long you got. You, you so. get to jump onto this without the sort of like, you know, 60-year uh, time investment that Trek would require to catch up on. So I can't recommend the Orville enough for as for countless reasons. Um, and because they're back for season three, now's the perfect time to jump in. If you've got Hulu, you can catch up on the other two seasons in a weekend if you really commit to it. And then you can just jump right into season three and, and be on, 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 deck, on, on the bridge of the ship with the rest of us just watching how they um, don't boldly go where nobody else has been before, but how they triumphantly travel to where other places haven't been. Because it's just like Trek but two steps to the left. And actually, we were talking about uh, John Champion and Mission Log and all that before. Uh, we have um, a Mission Log dedicated to the Orville. Now, it's not hosted by John and Norman. Yeah. But anyways, I can't find the names I'm looking for. But you could easily find it on uh, on Facebook. Uh, I believe John has always mentioned that uh, Mission Log Podcast is on Facebook at Mission, Ca- Mission Log Pod. So uh, you might be able to find it there. But they definitely have uh, the same kind of episodic breakdown for each episode of The Orville, which just another nail in the coffin of this is basically Trek. Uh, and, yeah. e- and even... Uh, these Roddenberry podcasts, uh, led by uh, Rod Roddenberry, are acknowledging that by giving them a platform to do the same kind of breakdown, which is neat. And uh, it's just like getting a blessing from the original creator in a way, which is just fantastic. And I, I couldn't be happier for him. Right. So that six degrees of Star Trek is not as far away as you might think, but we definitely uh, want to recommend that you watch this show for a variety of reasons. First of all, you'll laugh your ass off. Second of all, if you're into those classic sci-fi tropes, you'll get all of that and more. But really, it's the writing, it's the the pacing, it's the uh, the reverence Perfect to casting. which the casting, the reverence with which they uh, adhere to. Uh, classic tropes and classic trek it's just it's it's a thing to behold it's wonderful I, my entire yep. family loves it and so uh we want to behoove you uh, put you up to it uh get to hulu you've already got a subscription we know because we covered the cord cutting thing uh, we all know you got hulu Facts. so just sign on all three seasons are going to be there uh, and, and let us know what you think of course you can reach out to us and let us know in a variety of ways. You can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fuel your fandom. You could send us an email uh, to the podcast email address, which is fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. FYF talentbooking at gmail.com is the backup Gmail address. We're on Instagram at, at fuelyourfandom. We're at, on Twitter at, at fuel underscore your. And of course, we're always taking donations for the Fuel the Future charity program to get comics into the hands of underprivileged kids. And we take donations at Fuel Your Fandom, at Cash App, and Venmo, and PayPal. Uh, and of course, we're <laughs> available anywhere you get fine podcasts. So however you get us into your ear holes, we are absolutely thrilled that you do. So now... Yep. I get to wait for you to put up this 
uh, this episode so I can listen back to it and realize that my promise at the top of the episode to not speak <laughs> rapidly about things I'm excited about, uh, I managed to probably chuck out the window probably halfway <laughs> through the first, you know, 20 minutes we were talking about this show. We're talking about uh, sci-fi, you know, so you toss it out the airlock. It's a process. It's, it's a process, man. I'm still working on it. And I'll get better. No, it's fine. And and however you listen to us and, and however you you find us, we're just grateful that you uh, do participate with the show in whatever manner you choose. Uh, we want to thank you for listening uh, to yet another episode of the Fuel Fandom Podcast uh, from Jim and I. Uh, we want to say thank you. And please do remember that everything is fandom. And fandom is everything. Take care. Podcast in two pieces while I look up resource. <laughs> God damn it. I hate you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs>